Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Recently, I heard a story about a couple that attended a gym, and they were working out there for several years, and the gym decided to close down, which meant they had to look for a new place and a new uh, facility to go and work out and do what they did on a normal basis. And they found out that there were three options available to them in their area. One of those options was a gym whose business model is to charge a reasonable initiation fee and then a very low monthly rate. Their motto is no gym-timination. And they cater to those who might feel uncomfortable in a more traditional gym. So they don't have a lot of heavy weights available and they don't have an alarm that goes off when a uh, weight is dropped and makes a loud noise. And since their monthly rate was low, they figure that even if the people rarely use the gym, uh, they probably won't cancel their membership since it is so cheap that they will keep on paying their monthly fees. But they need lots of members to make that model work. The other two gyms, while they are somewhat different, but they both employ a similar business model. They feature much heavier weights and a large um, variety of equipment designated for the more serious weightlifters in particular. And these gyms tend to sell memberships more like uh, used car salesmen. So you have to negotiate the best deal uh, you can, but in general, you're going to pay a much higher monthly rate than the first gym I described. So they don't need nearly as many members as the first gym in order to be profitable. But they do need people who are really committed to working out. So they will continue to pay their monthly dues. And those two models paint a pretty good picture of the two kinds of Christianity that are being peddled in our culture today. On one hand, there is what I would call Christianity light. And that's the kind of religion that really doesn't require a lot. Just pay your dues by uttering a quick prayer. And then just dabble in a little Christianity here and there when it's convenient. But the other kind of Christianity is much more costly. It requires a serious commitment to Jesus in which we make him the Lord of our life. And I commit to live my life according to his purposes. Plans and ways and Jesus certainly taught that idea with these familiar words. And I'm talking about Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. You don't need to turn there, but listen. 
Enter by the narrow gate. For that gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So it's not really surprising here that when it comes to the Holy Spirit, those who claim to be Christians have two very different approaches to his work in their lives. And sadly, there are a lot of people who I think really believe they are Christians and yet who just want a little bit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. You know, just enough to alleviate their feelings of guilt over their sin. But really not enough to make a radical difference in the way that they live their lives. And as Jesus pointed out, there are large numbers of those who choose that way that he described as easy. But fortunately, fortunately, there are some, but not a lot, who choose the narrower, more difficult way in which they constantly seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit and keep in step with his leading in their lives. And as a result of that, their lives are radically different from most of the other people around them. That's when things start to take notice. That's when individuals say, what is it that is so different about you? What is it that you have that I don't have? What is it that gets you up in the morning and puts a smile on your face? This morning, on the Holy Spirit, we'll see how Paul describes those two different ways of life in Romans chapter 8. We were there last week. We're going to be there again. Turn to chapter 8 of Romans. And I'm going to read through again. I'm going to start in chapter 1, and I'm going to read through verse 17. Chapter 8, 1 through 17. Did I? Yeah. Of all the mistakes I made today, I hope you don't crucify me for that one. Verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is, what is it? Death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs With Christ, provided, now listen to this, provided we suffer, also be glorified with him. So suffering in order that we may also be glorified with him. What should that tell you? It's it's a saying that I've told the youth for all those years. If you are not suffering in your Christianity... You're doing it wrong. God has called us to a specific purpose. Now all of us sitting here have a different purpose and all in the works of the body of Christ. So the question becomes, what is your service to God? What is God calling you to do? He calls us all to walk in the spirit. What does that mean? What does that mean? So I want to give you an overall framework that we can use to learn from this passage. The theme of this passage can be summarized like this. God has done only what he could do to make it possible. And for me to do what I must do. Now obviously the key here 
is what God has done for me. But because our goal this morning is to focus on what I must do or what you must do, I'm going to summarize what God has done pretty quickly and spend the rest of the time focusing on our responsibility. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, what has God done? What has God done? You will notice that at the first part of this passage where Paul is describing what God has done, that all of the verbs, those are my English majors here, all of the verbs are past tense verbs. What does that mean? Well, it's significant because it reveals that God has already, he has already completed everything that he needs to do in order to accomplish what he wants for our lives. Do we understand that? He's already done it. He's done his part. Now it's our turn. Now it's our turn. He has set us free from the law of sin and he has set us free from death. Earlier in this letter, Paul summarized the law of sin and death like this. You all know Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. That principle, that the consequence of sin and death is seen throughout the entire Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. But in Genesis, we see that when Adam and Eve sinned by disobeying God, the result was that both physical and spiritual death entered the world. And because of that, all of us will die physically someday. And without God's intervention... All of us would also die spiritually as well. As Paul points out, we are incapable in our flesh of being completely obedient to the law. So what did God do? He did for us what he or what we could not do for ourselves. He took action. He took action to free us from the law of sin and death. And then Paul reveals that Jesus took on a body just like ours. And that is why Paul says that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Although the body of flesh that Jesus put on was just like ours, and unlike us, Jesus lived a sinless life. And by giving up his physical life on the cross, he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. God condemned sin through the flesh of his son to make it possible for us to no longer be subject to the condemnation of God that we deserve as a result of our sin. Is that something to praise God about this morning? So God has already done what 
only he could do. Since we are incapable in our flesh of dealing with our sin, God sent his son Jesus in the flesh to make it possible for us to be righteous before a holy God. But understand this, that doesn't mean that everyone automatically is set free from the law of sin and death. Remember the overall theme of this passage. God has done what only he could do to make it possible, and then here comes our part, for me, for you to do what we must do. This is a two-point sermon God is giving to us here. He has already completed his portion of the deal. He has fulfilled his promise. He has fulfilled his covenant to us. Now it's our turn. And that's where things get a little dicey, don't they? It's our turn. By doing what only he could do. God made it possible for me to do what I must do. But I still have to do it. Earlier we looked at Romans 6.23, but we need to look at the entire verse now. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Being set free from the law of sin and death results in what? What's our gift? Salvation. Salvation, Eternal life. Okay? That is both a quantity of life and it is also everlasting and a quality of life. The kind of abundant life that Jesus promised to his followers. That eternal life is a gift that God makes available to us through his son. But like any gift, it does not become ours until we actually receive it. The process by which we receive that gift is what Paul is describing in the rest of this passage. Beginning in the last part of verse 4, and not surprisingly, the verb in that part of the passage are almost all present tense verbs. Thus, they indicate a lifestyle of continuing action. Continuing action and not just a one-time decision or commitment. This is an ongoing process. We are not in a sprint, folks. We are in a marathon. We need to act accordingly. Walking according to the Spirit is the theme of verse 4. We saw Paul employ this same verb a couple weeks ago when we looked at the fruit of the Spirit. This was obviously several weeks back when we looked at the fruits of the Spirit. But it is the same word. Because in verse 5, in Galatians 5, or I'm sorry, just Galatians 5... Paul gives this command. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
And although the Greek word Paul uses in both places literally means to tread around, and in Hebrew, they thought that the word described a lifestyle. It refers to the way a person lives, acts, and how they behave. In both Galatians and Romans, Paul uses the term to describe the habitual behavior of the one whose life is lived in a manner consistent with the leading of the Holy Spirit. We walk according to the Spirit, but we also live according to the Spirit in verse 5. Those who are constantly being according to the Spirit. In other words, Paul is describing character more than he is describing what a person does. He's describing the character, not what they do. The character of the person. The person, obviously he is writing about here, is a person whose life is dominated. That's a strong word, but it is. Dominated or controlled by the Holy Spirit. So we walk by the Spirit, we live by the Spirit, and we're also led by the Spirit. Look at verse 14. Again, we saw Paul employ the same idea in Galatians 5. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In both passages, the verb be led, be led is a passive verb. And that indicates that someone else, and in this case, the Holy Spirit, is doing the leading. And our responsibility is to follow that leading. So, so far, we've seen that God has done only what he could do to make it possible for us to do what we need to do. God set us free from the law of sin and death through his son, Jesus. And by doing so, he has made it possible for you and I to walk according to, live according to, and be led by the Holy Spirit. But I still have to choose to do that in order to receive the gift of eternal life. In my opinion... And we all know this. You know that Romans is my book, my go-to. Uh, I study it probably on a weekly basis. But Romans chapter 8 is certainly among the most important sections in the entire Bible. Because it points out so clearly what is required to travel that narrow way that leads to life. So, before we even wrap up this series, there needs to be some very practical application to all this about the Holy Spirit. So, we need to take a moment to consider this. Why does this matter to me? Why does any of this matter to me? Why does this matter to you? Look at verse 14 again. But this time, look at the whole verse. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons 
of God. Do you want to be a son or daughter of God? I don't think you would be here today if you didn't. Fortunately for us, Paul gives us a very simple test to apply to determine whether or not God is our father. But notice what Paul didn't say here. Notice what he didn't say here. He didn't say that all who go to church are sons of God or daughters of God. He didn't say that all who read their Bibles are sons and daughters of God. He didn't say that all who give generously are daughters and sons of God. And he didn't say that all who are baptized are sons and daughters of God. Now, there is certainly nothing wrong with all of these things. And as your pastor, I will sit here and preach to you on all those things. Sometimes not on my own accord. But they're certainly important. But in saying that, and we know the fact that all of these are commanded in Scripture, and we ought to do them. But unless we are led by the Holy Spirit, unless I am walking according to Him and being a person whose character is consistent with his, none of those previous mentioned actions will ever result in you and I being a child of God. Not one of them. And since that is true, let's conclude by seeing what Paul teaches us about how to walk according to to the Spirit. Let me point out a couple of ways that people often attempt to do that, which clearly does not work. Walking in the Spirit is not a matter of emotions or feelings. Do you hear that? It is not according to how we feel, it is not according to the external forces that drive what we feel, what we do. Walking in the Spirit. There is a subjective element in understanding the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But that doesn't mean that we are to live based on our feelings and emotions. Often, walking by the Spirit is actually going to require us to do things that we don't feel like doing. Or that go against our own intuition. Nor is walking in the Spirit a matter of changing our behavior. Did you hear that? It is not a matter of changing our behavior. Now certainly walking in the Spirit will influence our behavior. But if our focus is only on what we are doing instead of becoming who God wants us, to become, we're right back to attempting to walk with God in the flesh. We're going against what Roman 8 just said. So none of it will matter. So how do we walk in the Spirit? How do we walk in the Spirit? 
Paul explains how to do that in verses 5 through 7. You can look there now. And this is really important that you read these out loud. You need to go back and read this out loud. When you leave here today, you go home, you're watching that Super Bowl. I mentioned it again, sorry. Read those verses. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. What Paul is teaching here is really quite simple. If you and I want to walk according to the Spirit, we must continually set our minds on the things of the Spirit. In Greek, the verb set the mind is just one word. It is the same word Jesus used when he addressed Peter after Peter attempted to rebuke Jesus when Jesus revealed that he was going to Jerusalem to die. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And it's also the same word Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2 when he is encouraging his readers to have the same mind as Jesus. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul also uses that word in this admonition to the Colossian church. He said, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are here on earth. You see, the implication of all these verses is that setting our minds is something that we have to do. God will give us all that we need in order to do that. Particularly by sending the Holy Spirit to live inside us. But I and you are responsible for determining what you set your mind on. It's our doing. God won't ever force you to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. That is something that I have to choose to do. That is something that you need to choose to do. Setting my mind on the things of the Spirit has two important elements. And I'm going to share those with you. But what I think about is influenced greatly by my surroundings. What I think about is greatly influenced by my surroundings. If I constantly surround myself with things of the world, then that is what I'm going to think about. 
If I were to have a nice eight course dinner sitting right here and heat was coming off of it and it looked good, what are you going to think about? Yeah. That is why it is so important in our kingdom life that we guard our minds. We must guard our minds. First of all, that means guarding against allowing things into my mind that might cause me to focus on the things of the flesh rather than the things of the spirit. That's why we need to do the best that we can to make sure that the books we read, the music that we listen to, and I know the youth are already looking at me. Oh, you people always say we can't listen to our music. Oh, I listen to the music for the beat and, and all these things. It's clouding your mind. It is clouding your mind. And there are other external forces that are doing that. Here I go. I'm going to mention it again. Today, the Super Bowl has become such an idol to people. That they're willing to sacrifice things <laughs> that they said they never would. The people and the things of this world are there for a reason. Satan is trying to cloud our judgment. He is trying to pull the things that are good in our life and destroy them. So we have to guard our minds. We need to guard our minds against allowing things that cause us to focus on the things of the flesh rather than the spirit. So watch the books that you read. Watch the music that you're listening to, the TV shows and movies that you watch, the websites that you visit, because they help you to focus on the things that are not of the spirit. And I know we've all had to learn this lesson probably the hard way in our life. But it is not enough to just keep the things of the flesh from entering our mind or even getting rid of them once they've entered. Understand that you also must fill your mind with things of the Spirit. And obviously the primary way that we do that is through the scriptures. And since the Holy Spirit is both the author and illuminator of the Bible, we need to be in our Bible. And things like the right kind of books, the right kind of music and media can help you and I keep our focus in the right place. So we have to guard our minds. But the second part of this is your perspective. Your perspective, let me say, the other important aspect to setting your mind on the things of the Spirit is the lens through which we view the events of life. How we view the events of life. I can either look at those events through the lens of my own flesh, or I can look at them through the lens of God's character and his grace. 
let's think about what that looks like in several important areas of our lives. In our relationship to God, if we view our relationship with God according to the flesh, I will start to think that God's acceptance of me is contingent on what I do. It's contingent on what we do. Usually that means that we'll think of God as a strict taskmaster ready to pounce on every mistake mistake I make. See, I just made one. And some people are like that, aren't they? They like to pounce on us, don't they? But if I view my relationship with God according to the Spirit, I recognize that my relationship with Him is based on His grace and that as Paul describes at the end of this passage. God wants to relate to me as a child who can be confident of his love for me. So when I make a mistake, I can take that to God. Knowing that he is eager and ready to forgive and restore our relationship. It doesn't matter what I've done or what I'm going to do. God is ready to restore it now. He's ready. If I view my relationship with my family, co-workers, and friends according to the flesh, then I'll look to those people to provide me with security, meaning, and identity. Unfortunately, that is a recipe for disaster because no human is able to provide those things for me on a consistent basis. Amen? Amen. That's because only God is able to provide those things for me. And as a result, our relationships become strained. And eventually we just quit getting involved with others. Been there, done that. Amen? Amen. But if we view those same relationships according to the Spirit, we then begin to recognize that only God is capable of providing security. He is only capable of providing meaning and identity. So that frees us up. Listen to this. That frees us up to be grateful. Freezes up to be grateful for our relationships with others and to recognize them as an expression of God's love for us. It also allows us to take the risk of investing our lives in the lives of others, knowing that we're going to be hurt. Oh, yes, we are. We're going to be hurt. But also understanding that forgiveness and reconciliation are possible through the work of the Spirit. And finally, dealing with those difficult circumstances. If I view the trials and difficulties in my life according to the flesh... I am going to see them as God's punishment. I'm going to see them as punishment 
Oh God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this in my life? Haven't I prayed enough? Read scripture enough? Done enough good deeds? Why, God? Why? So often, we'll spend all of our time trying to change our circumstances or try to get out from under them. But if I view those circumstances according to the Spirit, I and you will recognize that first of all, those circumstances, no matter how difficult are, are only temporary. They are temporary. And that one day, one day, they are going to be replaced by glory. They are going to be replaced by glory. And secondly, we'll understand that God can use those difficulties for our personal growth. And of course, again, for his glory. So my prayer changes for God, get me out of this, to God, what do you want me to learn from this? What do you want me to learn from this? So we know God has done only what he could do to make it possible for you and I to do what we must do. So having said that, the choice is yours. The choice is yours. Do you want to settle for Christianity light? In which you just seek enough of the Holy Spirit to keep you from feeling guilty, but not guilty enough to radically transform your life. If you're willing to settle for that kind of life, then the truth is, is that you've actually chosen to live according to the flesh. And that is going to result in death. No sugarcoating today, folks. That's what it is. It's death. Are we willing to do the often difficult and costly work of setting our mind on the things of the Spirit so that you can walk according to the Spirit and experience the life and the peace that comes with that kind of life? God has made it possible for you and for myself to live that kind of life. But again, the choice is ours and ours alone. Amen. Amen. Dave. Let's stand together, please. And as we go, may this be our focus this week.
things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thank you that you have fulfilled your promise. And Lord, now it's our turn. Thank you for those who are willing to follow by the things of your word and by your spirit so that we can change a world that is lost and dark. Thank you for the opportunity of doing so. And Lord, I pray that we will continue to be vigilant of guarding our minds and our hearts to the things of this world. Thank you that you love us, that you sent your son to come to be one of us, to die, to be risen, and Lord, (laughs) to bring us to glory to you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your love. And all of God's people said, have a great week in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.